And when you find your place, if you would join me as we stand in honor of our King's Word this morning, Genesis chapter number 2, begin in verse number 7. Genesis 2, verse number 7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That is how you came into existence, my friend. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the trees, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you go down to verse number 15, the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Verse 19 and 20, you have Adam naming the animals, but then in verse 21 through 25, you have the beginning of the family unit. And the Bible says in verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That is the definition of marriage, isn't it? And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Innocence and purity. And then you have chapter 3. How long did it take for Satan to come onto the scene? It says, now the serpent. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you have given us the joy of family. And as we come into family month in November here at Lighthouse, we ask that your hand would be upon these services, that you would be with the fathers and the mothers and the children and the parents and grandparents. And God, I pray that you would put your hand upon the families of Lighthouse I pray that you would be in the center of our homes, that we would love you, God, and we would love one another. Bless, Lord, as we navigate through these passages today. Help me to preach all that you would have me to, and may you be glorified through these. And we ask it in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. Well, you don't have to be an expert on the family. To look across this country and know that the family unit is in decline because the family has been aggressively attacked and effectively changed by this nation. And you need to know that the collapse of a nation will result when the building blocks of that nation begin to crumble and the foundation stones of a nation are its family units. In my parents' generation, you had a traditional home where two parents would be married and it was not abnormal to see a 40, 50, and even 60-year marriage. Today, that is sadly not the case. According to Pew Research, in 1960, 73% of kids lived in a home where their parents were still married. Today, that's down to 46%. In 1960, one out of 10 kids lived, with their dads in the, uh, lived without their dad in the home. Only 10% of kids grew up without their dad in the home. Today, that has tripled in our culture. People are wanting, uh, also waiting longer to get married. Today, the average age of marriage is 29 for men and 27 for women. And the number of people living together from 18 to 24-year-olds have, have, is, is 15 times higher today than it was in 1970. People are waiting to get married, so they just cohabitate. And so whatever America has done over these past 50 years, the things that this country has allowed, tolerated, and accepted have effectively broken down the family unit. I'm, I'm going to say some things that are going to offend some people's sensibilities, but you need to know that your pastor loves you, and I'm going to tell you what I feel is truth. 
And so drugs have created a devastating effect on families and societies. They have infiltrated our cities and communities at, at an alarming rate. We've seen the rampant amount of deaths from heroin. Uh, Dayton, Ohio, just a few years ago, was the number one city in, of, of heroin overdoses. How incredible that is. But meth has really taken on the, uh, the, the front stage in the drug world today. Uh, it was just a while back that in one month I buried a 33-year-old, a 36-year-old, and a 29-year-old in one month. That's a lot of children involved in that. A lot of broken-hearted parents. You know, America has the highest rate of illegal drug use on, in the entire world. The United States has the highest rate of illegal drug use on the planet. We're, we're not only a nation that's filled with illegal drugs, but also legal drugs. If I were to ask you, what is the deadliest drug in America? What drug kills more people than any other drug? What would you say? Well, according to Dr. Scott Bond at Physic uh, Psychology Today, he said, contrary to popular mythology, prescription drugs are more lethal than illegal or street drugs. Prescription drug abuse and addiction kill far more people in the U.S. every year than all illegal drugs combined. Now listen to me very closely, because somebody always gets this twisted around. I am not against all medication. I am not against all medication. Medication's not the problem, over-medication is. One problem in America today is we have replaced parenting with prescriptions. Can I say that again? We have replaced parenting with prescription drugs. As a nation, we believe that we can medicate our way out of this mess. And why? Because our world has redefined sinful behavior as a mental disorder or disease. They reject sin. Psychologists reject sin. People that are not saved in this world of psychology. We have some godly psychologists in our church, and I thank God for people that are in the medical world in our church. We have people that do it in the right way because there are certain mental disorders and there are certain things that need medication. Now, but, but wholesale in our country, that world has rejected sin, so they call it, when somebody does some wrong deed, a result of a mental disorder. And why do they do that? Why do they, why do they heighten this up so much? Well, two reasons. First, they don't believe in sin, so instead they have to call it a mental disorder or a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. Drug abuse is a disease. And I, believe me, I understand the whole world of, they say, well, your, your, your brain modifies in your behavior. But if you talk to any neurologist, they will tell you your brain is plastistic, which means it can modify. So your behavior causes your brain literally to change structure. And, but as you do the right behaviors, your brain changes back. That's why the Bible says, put off the old man, renew your mind, and then put on the new man. God's word knows what the answer is, right? You have, to, you have to put the right stuff in there. So you can change. And that's why there's multitudes of people at Lighthouse who were in the drug world who've been set free because they've changed not only the behavior, but also the thinking. So the first is not only, is, is that the reason? But secondly, you need to know this. Insurance companies won't cover the cost of medication for bad behavior, but they will cover the cost of medication if you label it as a disease. Today, if kids act up in school, the first thing they want to do is medicate them. Children in the United States are three times more likely to have prescribed, be prescribed antidepressants in children in Europe. Why is that? Today, if your young child is doing bad in school, one of the first things they want to do is put them on medication. I would ask you the question, did that doctor do blood work on your child? No. Did they go through any medical tests? No. They went through a series of questions that are attached to the behavior of that child, and they believe they can fix the behavior with medication. Now, some kids need medication. That's true. I'm not against all medication. But, and I thank God that there are some great doctors that we even have in our church who don't just ask a small handful of questions, but they'd rather go into what's the family unit like? What's the parenting like? What's the structure in the home? Because most of the time, the children are simply a reflection of what the parents are or are not doing. If the parents are unstable, why would you think the kids would be stable? Today, we're trying to medicate morality and behavior. You medicate disease, but not behavior. Don't be naive. 
Those making billions may not have your children's best interest at heart. Have you ever wondered why they put ads for prescription drugs? They're prescribed. Did you hear that? that, Did that make sense? Why are there advertisements for prescription drugs? What do you think they say? Ask your doctor about. (laughs) Because there's billion dollar industries that are pumping that and their drugs are not, they're designed just simply to help you. They're to put money in the pockets of those who are pumping them out. Our problem isn't a chemical imbalance, it's a spiritual imbalance in this nation. You know, one summer when I was a young kid, one summer as a uh, young teenager, I got in seven fights within like, I think maybe two or three months. In sixth grade, I was in the principal's office all the time. I was fighting all the time. I remember one day I went to the principal three times in one day. When you go to the, when you go to the principal three times in one day, that's a bad, that's, that's not good. I stole, I lied, I cheated, I misbehaved. If I didn't get locked in the house, I would run wild. I had no desire but to go sin. I just sin, eat it up. Now, what would you do to me in this day? What medications would they put me on? They would have put me on all kinds of things. The greatest medication my father gave me was, I never took medication. (laughs) He had a different kind of medication. (laughs) But but you know why I began to act out? Because my parents' spiritual lives began to decline, and it had a ripple effect down the ladder. And it wasn't sin that my parents so much got caught up in. It was wrong priorities. The American dream became the American nightmare. You get bigger the house, bigger this, then mom and dad have to go work more. It's not wrong to work more, but when you begin to get away from the things of God, I'm going to tell you something, that ripple effect down the line turned into devastation. Their marriage began to fall apart, and when I thought my parents' marriage, who cares about anything in life? You think I care about what my grades are going to be when I don't know if my parents are going to stay together? Who cares about it? And, 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 and it just starts going off. And, and that turned into a years of just a mess. And, and it wasn't until my dad and mom got right with God and began to put Christ at the center of our home that it literally revolutionized our home. I saw my dad on his knees crying out to God. And as a rebellious, sinful kid that just hated that, God began to break our hearts down. And, and, and it's only reason today, three out of us, four kids... Our, our pastors today I have another brother who loves the Lord and, and all of our children that are old enough have come to know Christ as their Savior. And, and that's all to the grace of God. Our culture is filled also with rampant sexual sin. According to the CDC, 68 million Americans have an STD. 20% of adults walking around have an STD. 26 million new cases every year. We're spending $16 billion a year as a nation on STD cases. The U.S. has the highest rate of teen pregnancy in the industrialized world. 20% of women in our country have either been raped or have people tried to attempt to rape on them. 20%, 30 to 40% of the women in our culture have been molested. We are a sexually perverse nation. You know the United States makes more money off pornography than it does the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. And then you have abortion. We are a nation that has prided itself on murdering its own children. Even with the overturning of Roe vs. Wade, do you know there are more abortions this year than last year? With the overturning of Roe vs. Wade? 25% of pregnancies in our country end in abortion. You need to get out and vote this week. All these lies that come out and say vote yes on issue one. Listen, if you want to seek to end abortion, vote no. And if you, on both issue one and two, would be a positive way to do that. Often in America, it's been said you can be whatever you want to be, meaning if you grow up, you can be a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, a firefighter. But today, that means you can be another gender. I mean, we have, we have school systems today that are putting litter boxes inside of bathrooms. Not all schools. We have some great teachers in our church. We praise God for you. Thank you. But there are some schools that have just eroded. And then in our country, faith has continued to decline. 
In 2019, according to LifeWay Research, the most recent research on this, it showed that there's 4,500 churches closing every year in the United States and 3,000 new churches starting. It's actually the first year since they've been doing this research and these studies that showed that there are more churches closing in the United States than opening, and now it's by a wide margin, and that was before COVID. According to Pew Research, uh, its study showed that Americans who identify as Christians dropped 12% 12 in the last decade, from 77 to 65%, but those who identify as nuns, no religious affiliation, grew by 50%. It's also been projected that the percentage of Americans attending church by 2050 will be half of what it is today. Just know this, America is turning into a godless, even more so godless nation. But you know what else is inclining in our nation? Islam since then has doubled since 2007 in our nation. Atheism has doubled. Agnosticism has nearly doubled. We're no longer God bless America, but God less America Most young adults today don't pray, worship, read their Bible. A majority uh, of of surveys have shown this. Many have estimated that between 69 and 94% of their young people are leaving the traditional church after high school. Very few will be returning. Where do you think America will be in the next 10 years? Is this this a day for parents to watch short YouTube videos all evening long? Is Is this where we should be? Brainless? thinkless, running our kids back and forth to sports activities, which that's great to do, nothing wrong with that, but neglecting the Word of God in the home? Let me ask you, Mom and Dad, how many spiritual conversations in the last month have you had with your children? And if you're not having spiritual conversations, what kind of conversations do you think the very intentional world's going to be having with them? They will own your children. They will beat you out. But you can win. If you take the word of God and live it out seriously, it's when parents become complacent. I can tell you this, the world has never been complacent. It is very aggressive. We're one of the only nations, if you study this, that that allow advertisers to advertise to children. Most nations won't allow that, but it's wholesale on our kids. And with them looking at advertising on their social media, eight to 10 hours a day, they will take your children's brains and turn them to whatever they want them to be. You better be aware of that. Let me ask you, parents, how are you doing raising the parents of your future grandchildren? Whatever you're doing with your kids is going to live itself out in your future grandkids. Too many parents are sending their kids into this world with crossed fingers, hoping they turn out right. Listen, our children need more than hopeful parents. They need intentional parents leading from the front and showing them the path they must pave in a world that's falling to pieces. We don't need parents knocking on wood, hoping their family turns out right. We need them not to be passive, but to be active, not bystanders, but leaders. There's a reason God called parents, parents. Some of you here today, and the truth is you're dealing with a lot. Some of you are single parents. Some of you have already so much on your plate. Just know this, the church is here to support you. God is on your side. And so this month, we're going to be focusing on the family. This is an extremely important time for you to take seriously what you're doing with your family. The Bible says in John 10, 10, the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, but I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. So how do you build a thriving home? I just want to look at three things today out of this passage in Genesis. And this is where the family originates. And so we're going to be able to see some key truths today that will be a blessing. First of all, you need to know this. You need to realize that God is for your family. Like God is on your side. He wants you to have a thriving, successful, God-centered home that is, is transformed when you look at the first family, you see how much God was for the family. First of all, in Genesis 1, and 7, the Bible says God made man in his own image and in his likeness. He made you rational. He made you coherent. He made you uh, to be able to have a conscious conscience. You, you had intelligence. You were a self-conscious being. God made Adam and Eve to have dominion over all of the earth, according to Genesis 1, through 28. 
He placed the first family in the most beautiful part of his creation in the Garden of Eden, chapter 2, verse 15. He made sure that they were completely fulfilled. Genesis 2, 18, he says, everything was good except for one thing, and that was that man was alone. And he said, I'll make him a helpmeet for him. And so he created the woman and brought them together, and they became one flesh. Marriage is the first of the three institutions God ordained before government and before the church, the family was created. God gave Adam and Eve also the blessing of having children. In Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Children are a gift from God. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, lo, children are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of his womb, the fruit of the womb is his reward. I love when I see a family with six, seven, eight, nine kids. We like to tease families like that and say, oh boy, I feel sorry for you. That's a terrible attitude. We should say, praise God that he's giving you such a fruitful family, man. You know, you know why Islam is exploding around the world? Because they celebrate kids where Christianity feels sorry for people for having kids. Right? People make people feel ashamed if they have a bunch of kids. You should be like, man, that's, that's a cherished family right there. Praise God for that. Praise God that they celebrate. You know, to the Jewish people, they saw it as sinful to seek to try to keep restricting the number of kids you have. Just bless the home, have children. Now, I think, you know, you, you, have, a, you have a freedom to choose uh, how many kids you have there in that sense, but, but rejoice in children. They're a blessing. I mean, remember when, you're, when you found out for the first time your wife was going to have a child? I mean, how exciting that was. That little child came home and, and uh, those first moments, you know, I, I, I remember just the impact. I would come home and sometimes you'd have a stressful day and, and you sit down in that recliner and you take that little precious 10, 12 pound baby and you put them on your chest. You lean back and whatever worries you had in life just evaporated in the peacefulness of that child. They are such a gift. I, I know coming home sometimes, I'd open my door, my little girls would come running out there, and, and just like, man, it just makes your day. And, and just the joy of children, the first steps, the first uh, words. Dada. You know, and my wife always says, you know, the only reason they say dada is because it's harder to say mama than dada. It's like, no, nah, you read that. That's a lie. Some woman wrote about that. You know, that's, that's not true. So I'd always sit the kids down and say, who you love more? Who you love more? And they're like, dada. I'm like, I got it again. Four for four, man. All four of them. She's like, ask him now. I'm like, well, it's harder to say dada the older you get. You know, mama is so much easier to say. God also not only blessed them with children, but he blessed them by giving them work in the garden. Chapter 2, verse 15, he gave them the responsibility to care for the Garden of Eden. Imagine if everything you did just prospered. It was blessed. Amazing fruits, vegetables they were eating, just all this stuff God prospered. He gave man purpose and meaning and reason to exist. You know why people often seek to commit suicide? Because they don't feel like they have any purpose in life. God filled them with wonderful purpose. God created a perfect environment with no sin, no shame, no corruption, perfect provision for all of their needs. He protected them by warning them of what would hurt them in Genesis chapter 2, 17. He says, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil for the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. God created man with a perfect relationship with himself. The greatest gift God gave mankind was himself. He's the pinnacle of what joy is. That's why Psalm 1611 says, in thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, when you get to heaven, you will experience for the first time what infinite joy would be. You will have a body that will have the capacity to respond to that joy. And you will be overwhelmed forever with the pleasure of God. Pleasures forevermore, infinite, unceasing joy. The theme of heaven is eternal joy eternal bliss. So God created the first family, gives them dominion over all the earth, places them in the most beautiful part of his creation, the Garden of Eden. Then he creates marriage between one man and one woman, made them pure and holy, gave them the ability to have children, provided all their needs, gave them warnings to protect them from what would kill them, walked with them in a perfect relationship in paradise. God gave everything to the family to allow it to succeed, to allow it to thrive and to prosper. And even after man wickedly rebelled against God, 
God chose to eat of the fruit of the tree. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He came in human flesh, took our sin, died on the cross so he could restore the paradise lost so that it would be paradise restored by the time you get to the end of the Bible. This is the God who created you. This is the God who made you. This morning, you need to understand God is for your family. He wants your family to thrive. Sometimes people have a foolish notion that the God of the Old Testament is kind of a tough God, but the God of the New Testament is the loving God. That's a lie. The same gracious God you find in the New Testament in Christ is the same gracious God you find throughout the entire Old Testament. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. He wants to work in and through your lives. He desires your family to be filled with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. When God got done with the family in Genesis, they lived in paradise, in perfection, in union with God and one another. And when you get to the end of the Bible, that's what he restores. That's who your God is. But secondly, today, you need to not only recognize that there is a God who's for your family, the true God, but secondly, there is one who is wanting to attack your family. How long did it take for Satan to show up to attack the family? Was Eve looking for him? Was Eve like, is there anybody that's going to tempt me? No, no. You know, in our homes, your kids and family do not need to look for sin. Sin comes looking for us. Genesis 3 is the introduction of sin into the world. Satan comes to Eve And his entire goal is to thrust sin into the home because he knows if I can get sin in the home, I can destroy the home. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse number 1. He says this, Now the serpent was more subtle, the word means crafty, sly, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said, We may freely eat of the trees of the garden, right? Verse 3, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And Satan said, you better listen to God because he knows what's best. Is that what he said? And the serpent said unto the woman, you you think God's going to kill you for eating a piece of fruit? You, You think hell is real? That's a joke. Hell isn't real. You know who would say hell is not real? Satan would say that. Satan always lessens the punishments. You're not going to die. But I tell you this, God knows that the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to be enlightened. You want enlightenment? It's not through Hinduism, it's through sin against God. The way to infinite joy is not in obedience to God, it's in disobedience. So what did she do? And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and ate and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now oftentimes people ask the question, if God is so good, if God is so loving, if God is such a gracious God, why would he even give the option, right? I mean, why don't you just make paradise without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Just remove the option. So why does he do it? Well, possibly God didn't want to create a robot who never had the chance to respond. Secondly, perhaps God wanted to give the man the opportunity to love God freely, voluntarily, and willingly, to respond to God's commands with obedience and love and faithfulness. And so man was given one command to follow, one temptation to avoid, one option to say no to, and when given the choice, man chose to rebel. You say, but it cost man so much. Let me ask you, has that Did Genesis 3 cost man more than it cost Jesus Christ? Did it cost God? Man opened his ears and eyes up to the enemy. He listened to deception. He allowed his heart to be filled with doubt toward God. He listened to the lies of Satan. He believed that sin was the answer to true fulfillment. And the deception they listened to became the sin they embraced. As they rejected God's commands, they took of the forbidden fruit. Immediately sin invaded their lives and they experienced devastating effects. You need to hear me. Sin is a separator. It it separates everything it touches. Once you get sin in your life, you'll begin to get separated from things. 
It separates people from God, people from one another. It separates families. It tears husband and wives apart, children from their parents, parents from kids. It even had the power to separate Jesus from the Father. When Jesus took our sin on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sin is devastating. There's one thing that if you remove entirely from your home, if you remove entirely from your life, you will have no more problems, no issues, not even worries, and that is sin. Behind every argument and fight, behind all the yelling and screaming, behind every relationship that has been broken and destroyed, you will find sin. Sin lurks behind every family in turmoil, every marriage that has been torn apart, every child that cries out, why? Sin stands back and laughs. It laughs at the devastation of your family. It takes pleasure in the vile corruption and the assault on the family. It seeks to rip families apart, to turn husbands against wives, wives against husbands. It seeks to turn children against their parents and parents against their kids. It separates everything it touches and it seeks to touch everything. It wants to affect our thoughts, emotions, language, attitudes, actions, our finances, our time, focus, desires, our passions, everything. Every family has issues here today because every family here has to battle sin. We all feel it. So first of all, realize God is for your family. Secondly, your family will be attacked with sin and the enemy will never stop. Thirdly, you need to remember the consequence of sin on the family. I think less people would give in to sin if they understood how, pri- how hefty that price tag is. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. It'll take you farther than you ever wanted to go. Let me give you some consequences of sin. First of all, look what happens in chapter 3, verse 7. The first thing that happens is a consequence of sin is in verse 7. It says, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The first thing that was lost was their innocence. The first thing that that was lost in mankind was innocence. They immediately had shame, discomfort, and embarrassment come into their life. They prostituted their hearts with sin, and they lost their purity before God. Not only that, but it caused separation not only from their innocence, but separation from God in verse 8. It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among uh, among the trees of the garden. You know, when, when God came to the garden, he wasn't, it wasn't Adam and Eve looking for God to get rid of their sin. It was God looking for Adam and Eve. And God says in verse 9, the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Adam, uh, where art thou? Now, was God like, you know, I've just, I've just lost my omniscience. I don't know where Adam and Eve are. Anybody know where they've gone? Does God ask questions for his own benefit? Is, is he like, you know, I, 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 I need to study this thing out a little bit. I need to gain some information here. God never asks questions for his benefit. He, if God ever asks a question in the Bible, it's always for our benefit. He says, Adam, where art thou? Adam, do you know where you are? Do you see what you're doing? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I can tell you when people get sin in their life, it immediately separates them from the things of God. You don't get done sinning and then you want to go jump in the word. You don't get done sinning and you say, hey, can we go to church tonight? You don't get done sinning and want to have a Christ-centered conversation. And you know when people begin to get sin into their life because all those things begin to decrease, don't they? They start getting distant. You know, we're so-and-so. What happened to so-and-so? Why? You know, man, we used to have some spiritual conversations. We used to talk about, why, why don't they talk about that? Because they don't love that. They fell in love with something else. Thirdly, separation in the home happens. Look at verse 11. Sin caused Adam and Eve to begin to argue. And here we see one of the first expressions of human depravity. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? So what we're going to read here in verse 12 is the expression of human depravity. Like, how does depravity handle responsibility and accountability? Like, what does the sin nature do? And and we're seeing here the immediate results of this. I know we got different people that are psychologists, psychiatrists, people that work with uh, in the social field of of ministering to people, counselors, things like that. 
like how does it give expression? Like what does it do? Here's exactly what it does. Look at verse 12. And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of, of the tree and I did eat. Now, the, the first expression that you find is this. One thing that sin does is it always makes criminals victims. Sin always makes criminals believe they're the victims. They become blame shifters. We blame others for our sin. This is perhaps Satan's greatest lie. We have all fallen for this lie at times. Some of you are probably believing it right now. Satan wants you to think that you're the victim and you're being treated unfairly. That even if you did something wrong, it wasn't really your fault. Satan turns criminals into victims. That's why if you go down to the county jail, everybody's innocent in jail. (laughs) I'm serious. How do you know? Because I've talked to him. Man, I didn't do it. I'm sure you didn't. Amen. Why do they do that? Because they're just like us. You know, Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And you know what Satan does when he comes to Adam and Eve? He says, he says yeah, have God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You, you know what that question is, is implying? It's saying, Eve, are you telling me that God's not letting you eat of all these trees? Like, like what is he holding back from you? Like, like, I thought God was a good God. Like, I thought he really cared for you. Like, why is he not letting you eat of the, all the trees? She's like, well, we can eat of all the trees except for that one. Oh, he, he's not letting you eat of that one, right? So he's, he's not letting you eat of You know why he's not letting you eat of that tree? Because we'll die. <laughs> You're not going to die. That's a joke. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you will be enlightened and you will be like him. So actually, actually, you're not... You don't have a God that loves you. You're actually a victim of God. You're victimized by God. And this victim mentality was injected into the first man and woman. I want you to think about this. Satan got Adam and Eve to believe while living in paradise, freely given to them, that they were the victims of God. And, and who does Adam first shift blame to? Did you get it there in verse 12? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me. It wasn't, he wasn't blaming the woman first. He was blaming God who gave her to him. I didn't ask for her. You sedated me. You took my rib. It's you. The first place that Adam cast blame was on God. I've heard that lie propagated by people throughout the years. People who have bought into the lie, who think they're victims, and God, in fact, is the criminal. I've had people say this. I've had people tell me this multiple times through the years. You know, uh, I need to forgive God. I've realized I need to forgive God. After I mentally pick myself up off the floor, I just listen to him, but I'm just... Or people say stuff like this. You know, I'm really just upset with God. I just, I just, uh, I just really upset. God has wronged me. They feel God owes them that He's wronged them. They feel like they're not the sinner and the unjust one. God's the sinner. God, you're the sinner, and you need to repent to me, and maybe I'll forgive you. I'll tell you what, I hear it all the time anymore. God has wronged me, really. And if that's you today, you need to understand, you've you've believed a lie that's as old as mankind's existence. God has not wronged you. Everything in your life has been gifted to you. Did you you feel that? Did you breathe that just a moment ago? that, that, That is a gift of mercy. That last breath we took, your family, your home, your job, your health, your ability to taste food, your ability to work, God God is not the unjust one. You are. God hasn't sinned. You and I have. God didn't wrong us, but we've wronged him. God doesn't need us to forgive him, but we desperately need his forgiveness. Listen, I understand life can be painful. It can be difficult. You can be treated unfairly. That is absolutely true. But I can tell you, God's never treated us unfairly. In fact, you would not even want God to treat you with justice. Because if God was just, we would be dead already. I'm pretty glad that God has been 
unjust to me. And he's covering me with mercy and grace because I'm still breathing. You know what is not fair? What's not fair is 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ would go to that old rugged cross, take the filth and wickedness of every thought, word, deed, action that I ever committed, died and suffered in my place so that the Father would treat Jesus like he was as sinful as me, so that the Father could treat me like I was as clean as Jesus. That's not fair. And so when people come along and say, well, God has wronged me, they have believed the greatest delusion that the world could ever offer. You know, Satan is such a deceiver that there is literally no lie too big that people would not believe in him. Like Satan could throw out any lie and it's, it's insane that the, the lies that people believe. My daughter was witnessing to somebody the other day and they told her, well, I don't believe in God because he's just so selfish. That's, that's an example of someone who is living in a delusion. They were born into the world as a gift of grace. They have parents because God gave them parents. They have life. They have breath. They live in this country. Who ever been to a third world country? Raise your hand. You go to third world country, you come back here, and you're like, yeah, we're a lot more blessed than we realize. Or do you think there's a caravan of 7,000 people coming to our border? There is a whole rabbit trail. You know? There are some leaders in our country that need to realize if you can't keep your borders secure, um, this nation will... <laughs> it's, it's, it's an intentional insanity. And, and, and listen, I would, I, it's not the individuals crossing the border that... that it, it's not that. It's, um, I mean, why would we be so concerned about Ukraine's borders when we're not concerned about our own borders? It's just an insane thing. It's insanity, isn't it? I don't, I don't care if our president was Abraham Lincoln. I don't care if our president, who they were. The president's chief job is to keep the safety of your nation. There are 7 million immigrants in this nation that came in since this presidency's been there. We don't know who they are and where they are. You, you want to talk about some threats to our security that's rising. Do you think this morning as tens of thousands of people are, walk, are, are marching for the Palestinians and siding with Hamas, do you think that can't stir up some potential threats in this nation? Anybody want to be a Jew in that area? There's, there's marches in some places around the world with over 100,000 people marching in favor of Hamas and against Israel. And the same people that are was, marching in Washington, D.C. are crying out for the genocide. Some of them are crying out, I've heard it with my own ears, the genocide of Israel. We're living in some very interesting days. And we need to side with truth and righteousness and the Word of God and the God of the Word. So not only did Adam blame God, but Adam also blamed someone else. I mean, I, I would be curious one day in heaven, like, how did, what did you and Eve talk about after that? Because you like threw your wife under the bus. <laughs> like, you're an idiot. <laughs> Sorry. Genesis 3, 12. maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud. I just sometimes... I mean, you know, it's one thing to put your wife down, like, some, it's always bad to do that, wife or husband, but in front of God. Imagine what she looked like. I bet she was just staring at him. Genesis 3, 12, and the man said, the woman that thou gavest to be with me, so it's the woman you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So Adam's like, I don't even know why you're even asking me, because all the blame is outside of me. Um... Adam was blinded to his own sin. He could not see his sin, but he could sure see the sin of his wife. I want you to hear what I'm going to say. When people sin, the adamic nature in us, the, the, the human depravity in us, instead of taking accountability for our sin and saying, God, I'm going to confess my sin and that your grace would cover my sin, repent and get right with you. Instead of covering it with confession, repentance and the grace of God, instead we cover it up 
with the sins of our spouse or the sins of somebody else. We justify our sin, and then we say, I'm going to cover my sin with the cloak of elevating the sins of those around me. If I can make them look worse, then they won't have the spotlight on me. It's actually not my sin, it's theirs. You're believing Satan's lie. You're living for him when you do that. You're propagating deception. Do you know what causes a person to be blind to their own sin? There's two things. Two things that cause people to elevate the sin of their spouse or somebody else and not elevate their own. Number one is a broken relationship with God. When people are not right with God, they live in a delusion. (laughs) It's complete delusion. How can you be right in life when you're wrong with God, right? Secondly, it's pride. Pride always sees the sin of others, but it cannot recognize its own. Pride elevates their sin. And you ever notice this? Like if here's somebody's life, they're doing good, they have a great thing in life, then they have a sin in life, and and their life is like this. You know what pride does? It defines people by the lowest marks. It defines other people by the wrong... Like, did you see what they did? And they go around life elevating the lowest marks of the person's life. That is a satanic behavior. That is a satanic behavior. When you can keep propagating the low points of a person's life, why don't you propagate the high points? You ever had people in your life do that to you? You had, a, you had all that stress on you, you had a bad day, you came home and maybe you did something, you said something that needed to be confronted, maybe something you need to repent of, but then they just kept carrying that on and week after month after year just keeps bringing that up, bringing that up. I can tell you that's a, that's a prideful attitude. When you, when, when you can only point out what your boss does every time, they, that's a prideful attitude. Why don't you talk about the good things they did too? And so pride elevates that. Whenever pride is wronged, it, 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 the first thing it does is it brings up the other person. Pride, pride will even think me as a preacher is, is wrong in what I'm saying right now. <laughs> because it sets itself as the standard. Do you do that? When you've sinned and done something wrong, do you take personal responsibility? And the way you know this is this. If I asked your spouse today, if I pulled them aside, teens, young people today, if I pulled your parents aside, uh, vice versa, whatever relationships, if I pulled that person aside and said, do they ever ask for forgiveness? It's that one question will expose whether you are filled with pride in your life because those who have humility will be those who confess their sin and say, listen, I need forgiveness. But you show me a prideful person, they never ask it because they don't need it. (laughs) Why, why, Why do I need forgiveness, man? All the sin's out there. Yeah, you get right and you get your stuff cleaned up. The only reason I messed up is because of you. Oh, really? You may bypass in humanity like that, one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to be shredded before his holiness. And you will have no excuses in that day. Just read Matthew 25. You know what Matthew 25 is about? It's about the guy who God gave five talents, one, two, and another one. The man with five talents, he said, how, how faithful you were when you were on earth. He says, I've done all these things. He said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The man only says like a dozen words. Man number two, and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Man number two, he says, how did you do? And he says, I've doubled this. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But then he comes to man number three. Man number three had one talent. And he gave like three to four times more response and wording, like 40 to 50 words. He gave all the excuses in the world. And God says, take this unprofitable servant and cast him into outer darkness. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. They could justify it all day long in their minds. But you stand before God, justification goes out the window. Because he to whom we have all of our life exposed to, he sees everything. Nothing's hidden from him. Motive, thought, action, deed. Do you really think there's not enough sin in the circle that you're standing in for you to deal with? Why on earth would you get out and start pointing other people's sins out so much? right? We got to start with the person in the circle before we can help anybody else. That's why Jesus said, get the moat out of your own eye, and then you can help others with their sins. Adam was the criminal, and he played the victim card. Is that you today? Are you the victim? Really? You're going to play the victim card, right? 
The problem is with victim mentality, you're in a hopeless situation if you do that. Anybody that plays a victim card, there's no hope for you. You, you want me to give you an epiphany? You know what God's called me to do? Every Sunday, he's called me to turn victims into criminals. That's what, I, that's what he's called me to do. Every single day that I stand up here and preach, every time I sit down and counsel, all that stuff going on is to take people from focusing on the wrongs of others to see the wrongs in their own life and how they've wronged God, to stop covering their sin with a delusional justification to confess their sin. Why do I do that? Because I want them to be set free from their sin so that they might live for God and not in the lies of Satan. I want to take them out of Genesis 3. It's, there's better God has for you. Stop highlighting the sins of others and start taking responsibility for your own wrongs. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says this, If we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves. We're in a delusion. But if we confess our sin, you know the only people that confess it is the ones who take responsibility. And if we confess our sins, praise God, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes it shall have mercy. Not only were they separated in their relationship because of that, brokenness, arguments, all of that happened, but also they had separation from God's blessings in verse 22 through 24. Chapter 3, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take the fruit of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth out of the garden of Eden to till the ground whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed on the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You say, man, that seems kind of intense, kind of strong, doesn't it? God kicking them out of the garden for eating this fruit. I mean, that's just, why would you do that? Well, because the tree of life was there. And if they ate of the tree of life, when they were in a fallen state, they would have been confined to eternal fallenness. They would have been eternally confined to that fallen state. So one of the greatest graces and mercies of God you'll find in all the Bible is he immediately thrust them out of the garden so that they would not be stuck in a fallen state, but there would be a way of redemption for them. Even in his judgment, there's mercy. That's how good God is. You, if one day in heaven we're going to stand before God and we're going to find out, you mean you allowed those hardships because you knew how tragic it would be if you didn't bring them into my life? The things that I thought you were unjust for, you were showing me the greatest mercies of my life. You're here today. Many of you are here today because there was enough pain that awakened you to the reality of God. And the master surgeon knows how to caused just enough to awaken us to the reality of him. He only does what is necessary. There's no wasted pain on God's people. He bore our pain, didn't he? And then the last separation that happened to them, because sin separates us in chapter 4. This is the most, one of the most tragic. It was separation among the kids. You know, their, Adam and Eve's sin didn't just affect them. When they took that fruit, not only did it affect them, but it infected their children. The Bible says one man's sin entered into the world by one man, Romans 5.12, wherefore death came into the world and death passed on all men for that all have sinned. Genesis chapter 4 gives us the record. Cain and Abel were the first two children of Adam and Eve. And they were bringing an offering to God. And Abel brought of the his livestock and made an offering to God that was acceptable. And Cain tilled the ground and he brought of the fruit of the ground, but it was not an offering that God desired and, and, and he didn't have the right heart in doing it anyway and, and it was not acceptable. What that lets you know is this, not everything we bring to God is, is acceptable to God. We don't determine what God accepts, God does. So they brought offerings and God says, Abel, I accept your offering, but Cain, I don't accept yours. That's why people say, well, just as long as you're sincere in God, that's all that matters. No, uh, truth is much more important than sincerity. The 9-11 the, the bombers were very sincere, but they were very wrong. That's why Jesus says, they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth, both inwardly and accurately. And so he brought 
of that offering. And, 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 and you know what? When God rebukes Cain and says, hey, I don't accept your offering, guess what? Cain should have said, then Lord, what, what do you want me to do? But instead he got angry. In verse 6 of Genesis 4, it says, And the Lord God said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? He said, If you do well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall his desire be, and thou shalt rule over him. What he's saying there is sin's literally crouching like a lion at the door. And if you do what's right, you'll have victory over the sin. But if you don't, it is wanting to pounce upon you. And you know what Cain did? He rejected the counsel of God. Because Cain was a victim of God. If you ask Cain, I've been victimized. I brought God my offering and he's wronged me. And I don't care what God has to say. He's wronged me. And Cain bought into Satan's lie. So he went out and said, Abel, why don't you come out and check out my fields? And verse 8 tells us, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. I've always wondered when Adam and Eve were bearing their son, how heavy those tears must have been. Because they knew this is, this is because of us. I didn't know it was going to cost us this much. I didn't know this was the price. If I had known the price, I wouldn't have eaten it. How many nights do you think Eve stayed up crying for her boy? How often do you think Cain said, why do we do it? Or Adam said, why do we do it? Because they didn't lose just one son. That, they didn't lose just one son. They lost both. Cain became a vagabond, a fugitive. He fled, cast out. Parents, are you involved in sin? Or you think it's just going to infect you, right? You think it just has an effect on you? You're going to devastate your family. What kind, of, what kind of parents are you raising for your future grandkids? What are you doing to them? I can tell you, if you don't become serious about these things, the world is extremely serious about getting your kids. They, they, are, they, are, they are not casual about it. When Satan showed up in Genesis 3, you think the world doesn't get it? Um, when, when things usually go good, that's when Satan's going to want to jump in. He's going to do everything he can to destroy it. And, and today you need to understand this. You don't need to fear the world. You need to fear God. And what I mean by that is this. The most influence on your family is not from what's going on in the world. You have been given a God-given gift of influence. All the studies show this. I'm going to talk about this later this month. But you have been given divine influence onto your kids. There's no one in the world that influences their kids more than dad and mom. The problem is we surrender our influence. We give it up. We get all worried about what's going on outside in the world. And God says, listen, you need to put off the old man. You need to, there's some protections you need to have. But you need to be more focused on your walk with the Lord and the influence God has on you so you can be an influence on them so much I could tell you today, but next Sunday I'm going to be getting into a passage of scripture that is one of the most important passages for families to understand. Where are we going to be at in five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? This nation is not the nation of my parents and grandparents. We're moving far and fast and the Lord's return, I believe, is very soon. If there was ever a day, mom and dad, that you got serious about Jesus Christ, it's now. It's not the day to be lackadaisical. It's not the day to take things casual. It's not the day to take your hands off the wheel. It is the day to become extremely intentional as a parent, to be extremely intentional as a husband and as a wife. Some of you today need to say, you know what, honey, I didn't realize how prideful I've been. I don't remember the last time I said I'm sorry, and I need to ask your forgiveness for just being prideful. And you need to sit down with your husband and wife and begin to spend time in the Word together and begin to read together and spend time in the things of God. You don't just take church casually. One of the first things that happened to us, we just said, well, you know, we're so busy playing ball, doing this and that, and we just casually got out of church. And I can tell you, what my dad took serious, I took serious, and what he didn't make a big deal of, I didn't make a big deal at all of. So if you want them to take 
take, take the Lord seriously, it starts with mom and dad. And our kids don't need another sermon. I don't go home and do like sermon devotions to my kids. But we do hear journals. We do, we do Bible things like that where they come and tell me what they've learned in the Word each week. It's been the most revolutionizing thing in our home over the last two, three years. Most incredible thing. That's what we're going to launch on Sunday nights uh, in, in this next year. And it, it'll bless your family. It'll bless your relationships. It will just be an incredible thing for you. And you need to harness that stuff. Our kids don't need another sermon. They need to see a sermon lived out. They don't need to have you sit down and preach to them a Bible verse. They need you to see you live that Bible verse out. They need to see you love Jesus Christ with all their heart and love others as themselves and not justify sin, not play the victim card, but to say, you know what? I'm a criminal <laughs> and it's only by God's grace. You know, when you read the apostle Paul, he said, he, he started off in his early years of writing. He wrote half the new, te- 13 books of the New Testament. He said, you know what? I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. And then later he says, you know what, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a chief of sinners. And then later on he says, I, I, I'm, I'm a wretched man, oh wretched man. And he just kept getting, defining himself more sinful throughout his life. As, as the writings of Paul went on, the worse he saw himself. Because he saw God for who he was, he saw how sinful he was. And he lived with so much joy, so much peace, so much freedom, because it caused a cleansing effect in his life. And so today, I challenge you, Mom, Dad, this may be a good Sunday for you to take hold of each other's hands, whether at your seat or at an altar, and say, let's pray. Let's pray for our marriage. Let's pray for our children. Children, you need to be very intentional. The world will tear you apart if you don't get serious with the things of God. So much I could say in my head, I just got to be done. Let's all stand.